This is Karishma Asher, Race Equality Officer at the University of Liverpool, and you are listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. Hello, in this episode, we chat with Karishma about her role as Race Equality Officer at the University of Liverpool. And we hear about some of her recent work to coordinate the university's race equality charter application. We hope you enjoy. Karishma, we're really pleased to be speaking to you today about your role as race equality officer at the University of Liverpool. But before we get started, we love to hear a little bit from each of our guests about their background and how you've arrived at the role that you're in today. Of course, yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, So in terms of my background, um, it's predominantly in student unions. Uh, So I spent a lot of time working in um, SU, sort of behind the scenes um, in student campaigning and student democracy. Um, So a lot of this work crossed over with the liberation side of things. So working with student communities that face particular systemic barriers um, within higher education and in society more widely. So basically what we call EDI um, on the university side, it's liberation on the student union side. Um, So I worked with these groups of students to actually help build and sustain community networks um, in a way that it was led by those groups themselves, um, rather than sort of relying on an external um, person or the institution to actually run it for them. It was very much led by them for them Um, and to actually support them into translating their wider goals into campaign strategies. um, So some campaign expertise there as well. Um, there's a lot of training development um, involved, so working with elected student leaders, um, making sure that their sort of raw passion and lived experience um, as members of those groups um, could translate into targeted aims and wins um, to actually make um, their experience better um, for themselves and for other students as well, and then hopefully having that wider impact on the society that the university was part of. Um, and also making sure it was a two-way process, so making sure that those student leaders um, could get tangible skills and experience out of it as well. Um, you know, we didn't want to rely on those students to fix the problems that their institutions created without getting anything in return. So it was to make sure that we were being led by them um, while um, while it being a reciprocal um, process, really. Um, so that spanned co- across quite a few different areas of diverse groups, um, and the race equality uh, specialism that I'm now in, it kind of came out of a mix of personal experience, um, being a woman of colour myself, and um, research that I undertook and training that I undertook to actually understand the barriers that I was up against as a woman of colour. And then lending the expertise to predominantly white staff teams uh, to make sure that our race equality work as um, in those student unions uh, was authentic and it was student-led and it was... um, appropriately communicated and actually delivered tangible um, student-led sustainable culture change. Um, So when this role, the Royal Race Quality Officer, was created and went live, it just seemed like a perfect fit. Um, And here I am. Fantastic. So you have been working with students. And am I right to say your role now focuses on working with, with staff instead or students and staff? So it's predominantly staff um, with me sitting in the academy, um, but the race quality charter work that we undertake, it does uh, span across the whole institution. So that includes um, student experience as well, 
Um, so sometimes I do work with students or work with um, colleagues who deliver student-facing work. Um, but yeah, the majority is staff-facing uh, staff work. That's fantastic. And has most of your experience been in the northwest of England or if you had experience elsewhere in the country? The only reason I ask that is I'm wondering if there are specific themes that come up from working in universities in the northwest or if the the kind of themes that you work with are actually nationwide um so yeah predominantly in the northwest um I just prefer up north so I stayed up north um I have sort of networked um and trained alongside colleagues from um universities across across the country so uh, you know from southern universities and um it seems that the actual issues that, um in the sector that relate to race seem pretty consistent across the board and so do the um, initiatives and the interventions to address them. Um, but because there's just um, a more diverse population in those particular larger cities in the south, um, it I suppose it, it, looking at the raw data, it looks a bit better. Um, so there is a particular challenge in the north um, in terms of the population that we're recruiting from and who we attract um, in these institutions. But um, other than that, it seems, yeah, the issues are fairly consistent across the sector. I think what's really interesting about one, one of the things you've said there is around that work you were doing with campaigning. It just mm -hmm. seems like that was, it's, it, you're right, it is such a perfect role for you, this, isn't it? This race equality role. Because um, a large part of it is getting people to listen to the issues um, and then obviously to contribute through the through the survey so and we'll get on to that in a little bit later on but one of the primary objectives of your role includes coordinating the development of the university's race equality charter application so could you just give us a little bit of uh, of information about what that is and, and why it was created yeah of course so um the charter itself is a framework by advance he so if um if you're familiar with Athena Swan. It's, it's sort of parallel to that, um, but where they focus on race rather than gender, although intersection, intersectionality sorry, is key to what we do. So we, in the work that we're doing, we are looking at race and gender um, as an intersectional lens rather than race completely in isolation. Um, so yeah, Bavance HE um, created the charter. Um, I think it was 2015, I want to say that it was created, so it's a bit younger compared to Athena Swan. Um, and we as a university signed up to the principles of the charter, so effectively um, committed to undertaking the work towards an application uh, back in February 2021. We're conducting a self-reflective audit um, that is data-led with a lens of predominantly ethnicity. And um, our application will be a two-parter. So the first part is a, the core application itself um, that outlines the data summaries that we've been asked to provide. And then the second part is an action plan that actually responds to the racial inequalities that we find within that data. So how, how are, we, are we going with that at the moment? What are the completions looking like at, at the current time? And when does that process come to an end for the for the next part of it? Uh, so at the moment, we are, we're at the sort of tail end of actually collecting the data. So Advance HE give us a framework of the data that they want us to actually consider. So um, on the student side of things, it's things like the continuation rates, it's the actual um, diversity of our student body, um, of our applicants, um, the graduate outcomes, um, also, you know, all these different areas of student experience um, all laid together to give us a bit of a framework to work within. And on the staff side, I think it's a similar thing. So the, um, the staff body um, and broken down by sort of ethnicity and job type as well to see, you know, are there other inequalities um, at different grades, um, not just across the institution? Is there something there that we need to look at? 
um, a job type, contract type, that kind of thing. Um, looking at sort of promotion panels, looking at the way that we do things as well. So our recruitment processes, we have to comment on um, our promotion processes, disciplinary processes, all those things that can have um, a racialized impact on a member of the university community. So we're at, like I said, we're at the tail end of the data collection of that um, and at the analysis. So the analysis will actually look for the gaps to see where you know we're doing okay versus where there is work to be done. Um, our subgroups, so we have four subgroups. Uh, one is data, so they're doing the, the sort of legwork on collating that data and analyzing it. Thankfully, because I'm a literature graduate, so um, data is not one of my favorite things. Um, then we've got the uh, community visibility and staff experience subgroup. Um, so they're looking at basically the staff side of things and staff experience and culture and student experience. So looking at the student side of things. And those uh, latter two subgroups are made up of experts in those areas so we've got for example in the student subgroup we've got colleagues representing um careers um international advice and guidance aqsd um different faculties uh, all sorts of you know areas that all contribute to a student's experience while they're at the university and then similarly on the staff side of things as well so those subgroups um at the moment are um looking at the data outcomes that we're finding and providing a narrative with the context that they are representing. So um, if we find, for example, particular gaps in our staff body, um, we are then commenting on that from a recruitment lens or from an HR lens. Um, and similarly, in um, in terms of career progression, for example, we'll look at that from the uh, development opportunities that we offer, the, the training that we offer, to actually see where it is that we could be improving that. Um, and to provide a rundown of um, what we do at the moment as well. So the application, it's it's not for us to say, um, it's not for us to try and fix everything before we submit. That's absolutely not the point. It's purely to give a really clear, detailed picture of where we are now um, and then to talk about what we're going to do about it. So we're at that, we're almost at the end of the analysis stage. And then the next stage from around February onwards will be... Um, the actual drafting and approval process and consultation process of the application and action plan. Um, so that's going to be really fun for me uh, when I get to write 14,000 words on us as an institution. Um, but we are, you know, we're on track with that. And um, Matt, you mentioned the survey as well. So part of the administrative part of the process is to conduct a university-wide survey with questions provided by Advance HE because data only tells us so much. Um, we can look at the numbers, we can try and fill in the gaps from the expertise that we have, but then we also wanna hear from staff and students themselves about what they feel the issues are, um, what their experiences are, is anything that we're spotting the trends that we need to target that the data isn't telling us in isolation. So we ran that survey back in May, we got a really excellent response. I think it was, it was over 3000 respondents, which is just really, really excellent. We were really pleased with that. Um, and that's shown us some key themes that we need to look into um, in more depth. So one of the major principles underlying the charter is that um, what we probably call BAME staff and students. It's not a homogenous group. Um, the issues I face as a South Asian woman are very different to someone um, who is black my face or someone who is Chinese my face. So it's about taking a really nuanced approach to each ethnic group rather than assuming that one solution will work for everybody. Um, so one of the things we do as standard is disaggregating the data that we have wherever we have enough um, sort of people to anonymize the groups. So I think we're looking at 10 or more per sort of group um, at a particular level. 
just to make sure we're protecting anonymity. Um, we then disaggregate as far as possible to see what's happening across the different ethnic groups rather than just who's white versus who isn't. Um, and that's really come through really, really strongly in the survey. Um, it's, you know, when we looked at just um, BAME versus white respondents, there were some areas where there were no gaps at all. Um, but then when you disaggregated that, you could see because some groups were particularly um, positive about some of the areas that we asked about, that boosted the average up so high that it was disguising really, really concerning um, responses from other ethnic groups. So um, that survey has just really, really helped us round out that data collection and analysis to understand exactly what's going on. So we're also running focus groups at the moment um, with those groups that we've identified that need a bit more exploration in terms of what's going on and what the um, ideal picture looks like. Um, those are running at the moment to help us just full, uh, fully round out that um, investigative process. And then we'll put all of that together to see what our picture actually looks like. Um, and then the next step, um, as I said, we'll be refining it into the um, application. I have a feeling that 14,000 words will not be enough because it never is, but that's part of the fun. Um, and then we'll go into consultation um, with the aim to submit in July. Fantastic. That sounds so interesting in terms of the analysis that's going to have to take place um, around, as you say, those different ethnic groups and then pulling it all together in, into your application. And then, as you say, that goes in in July. Did you say July? Yep. Fantastic. So that will go in in July and then hopefully we'll get the outcome, I'm guessing, um, in a couple of months after that. Is that correct? Yes. So um, the panels, um, the panels basically made up of um, peers from uh, other institutions. So rather than it being the team at Advance HE, you know, um, analysing each application, it is a peer led review process. Um, so I think uh, because I'm a panelist myself, actually, so I'm part of that re um, review process for other is uh, institutions. Uh, I think what we're told is um, up to 12 weeks to give the panel enough time to have a look because it's it, you can imagine it's quite a big pack we'll end up in. Um, there may be some revisions as well. So, you know, we, we might be asked to just uh, tweak a couple of bits where we're, you know, we're on the border of being um, awarded. We just need to refine what we sent in. So that might be a possibility. And then we'll get the final outcome, um, I think, up to 12 weeks after submission. Fantastic. That's brilliant. And then hopefully we'll be successful after that panel or maybe a subsequent panel after that. Yeah. But what's your plan to then, um, once that's been achieved, once the chart has been achieved, to roll it out across the institution? Um, what kind of impact do you hope that will have? Um, so in terms of the rollout, um, it's so that the charter award actually lasts for up to five years. So um, it's not a case of, you know, once we get it, that's it. We, we fixed racism. Um, that's not, um, you know, that's not what it says. And it just recognizes that we are on the right path to um, addressing the racial inequalities that we find. And we've done so in um, an appropriate way, a detailed way, and one that is authentic with um, tangible solutions that we've proposed. So part of the consultation process for the action plan in particular will be um, ensuring that each action that we find is, sorry, each action that we put forward um, is allocated to the right person or right team um, so that we can make sure that we are accountable for every single action that we put forward. Um, and each of those actions also needs to be smart. So it's specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time bound. Um, the campaign is dream basically. Um, so if anyone's listening and thinks raising awareness is a campaign goal, it isn't, and I could talk about that for hours, but I'll leave that one there. 
Um, so all of our actions need to be smart. They need to be accounted for in terms of who will actually be doing them. Um, and then the rollout will be actually putting that into action. So because the sort of um, measurement element of it is embedded into how we design that action, there is that ongoing monitoring of um, almost tracking the progress of that mini project um, as it goes on. So it's, it basically then falls to a bit of an ongoing project management thing of just all the different areas. Um, but then as I mentioned, with the award being valid for five years, um, we will then start this whole process again to renew um, or to move on to silver um, in about five years time um, after, um, after our first application. So we will then have a proper look back at the data to see, um, you know, what is the, in those core data sets that we have to provide, can we see any major differences that we set out to achieve um, in the actual actions themselves? When we look back at them, can we see if we've achieved them or made progress towards them? Or can we see what went wrong so that we can adjust that and do it again? Um, so in terms of um, the impact that I'm hoping to achieve, it's I suppose it's a bit of a twofold one. Um, for our, for, you know, for our staff and students of um, ethnic minority backgrounds, um, you know, it's having that really sustainable, pragmatic culture change where they can come to work or they can come to university and um, they can, you know, our staff can all progress in their careers without being up against racialized barriers. Our staff don't have to work twice as hard to overcome racialized barriers when they are fully capable of, of being promoted. Um, I think we we like to think we live in a meritocracy, but merit is part of it. And then there's the privileges that come with um, certain characteristics. So, you know, one of the impacts I really like to see is systems and processes that try to aim for the meritocracy that we actually think that we live in. Um, on the student side of things, you know, it's students that are able to come and demonstrate their full capabilities without, again, having to work twice as hard to overcome um, things that don't actually matter in terms of their academic performance, but for some reason do. Um, they can see themselves reflected in their course content. They can see themselves um, reflected in their institution and in um, in the academic makeup as well that we have. Um, and just getting that really strong feeling of belonging. Um, so that's some of the sort of wider impacts I'm hoping for. Um, I suppose in a, in a really sort of long-term and um, quite a, big picture dreamy sense you know we have a massive impact on the society that we're in we um we we're, we're part of a massive city we engage with it on a day-to-day -day basis with different communities our graduates go out and impact almost every facet of society through the sectors that they work in and it sets us up in this really incredible opportunity to have a really positive impact on our society as a whole so to be able to see the work that we do now sort of play out in the long term over the coming 10, 20 years. Um, because we've equipped all of our staff and students to be part of a global university and part of a multicultural society. Um, yeah, that would be quite an amazing thing to see, I think. Wow. I mean, you're on the verge of solving racism there. Just thought you just said you can't <laughs> do. <laughs> but then I won't be employed, Matt. No, that's true. That's true. I think it's very interesting, actually. It reminds me of my time in, lo in a local authority, which there was lots of conversations happening around the need for the staff body to represent the local community. Um, and that in Stoke-on-Trent meant that uh, finding those South Asian 
staff groups and trying to in increase those numbers really. And to be honest with you, it, it, I don't remember, I remember pockets of positive action, but not the type of systematic approach where we're, you know, where we're really understanding the, the staff group, the student body like we're doing here and then finding and, and doing actions and creating an action plan around how to, you know, how to tackle some of those issues. So it seems like the conversations moved on since my time in local government who, who were just sort of grappling with it and they couldn't really get to grips with it. It seems like universities maybe are pushing ahead as they should be uh, in this area. I know another aspect of your role is to identify and promote best practice in race equality uh, through obvious knowledge sharing, developing and delivering training. So could you just tell us a little bit more about that part of your role? Of course, yeah. So um, like I mentioned, you know, I do network with other race quality leads or rec leads across the sector. So um, it is, it's always a really excellent way to see what other institutions are doing, see what already works or what barriers um, they've come up against so that we can sort of see, um, are we seeing something similar? So I know, for example, at the start of our rec journey, um, we, were, so we were finding our feet quite a bit. And we reached out to, I think, Kingston University, who were on their, I think, silver application. And they did directly to the session with us to talk about their experiences. Um, and it was really sort of validating and just really encouraging to know that the um, the difficulties we were experiencing were a totally normal part of the rep process. And we are embarking on a massive piece of culture change. Um, so, of course, we we're going to find the issues that we found. So it wasn't that we were on the, we, we weren't on the wrong path. Um, we were just finding the difficulties that are naturally going to occur. So I think part of that does come from the networking, from, um, I guess, being a little bit vulnerable and asking for guidance and insight and tips, um, which I think we could all just be better at as universities. We're also sort of um, obsessed with being sector leading or at the very least being on par with each other, that um, it turns into a competition rather than a shared arena of um, yeah, knowledge sharing, which is what it should be. Um, so the other side, the other side of it in terms of the training and the resources, um, again, that some of that comes from seeing what the institutions do and what's worked well for their staff bodies. Some of it is staff led. So, um, you know, we, I do get a lot of requests for training either in departments or just suggestions of training that people would like to see. Um, with this role of race quality obviously being new um, and only having brought in last summer. Um, it's a whole new portfolio that we are still building. Um, and so it's a really exciting opportunity to kind of develop it in line with demand and need rather than just sort of putting something out and then seeing what happens. Um, so a lot of the training that I do is based on what um, staff have told me they want to see. Um, and it's taking that sort of race quality theory that's just kind of bubbling in my brain all the time and kind of translating that um, into a bit of a sort of long-term strand that staff can engage with. Um, because it's it takes a lot of learning. It takes a lot of um, sort of reflection and research to sort of understand the really fine nuances. And um, I think one of the things that is often said, just generally in culture, not really to, not necessarily to me specifically, is you see on Twitter a lot of people saying, "Oh, it's always about race" or something like that. And I think once you are you have your head in it um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Of course, it's about race because you are used, to, you, you can spot it a mile off. So it's just building that understanding of, um, and I guess a kind of sensitivity so that you can spot those issues arising and then learn how to tackle them 
um, how you can maybe prevent them or um, adapt to them in your um, in your work streams. So that's where the I guess the training side comes in. That's kind of my aim. One. I think that's great that um, we've created this new post that um, you now occupy, which is fab since um, the summer, which has got this element of knowledge sharing, developing and delivering training. And I think lots of colleagues want to tackle this issue of racism. They just aren't equipped to do it. So it's great that that's a key part of your role. I was recently contacted by an academic who wanted some advice on how to confront inappropriate conversations in the classroom, specifically in regard to race. So can you give us some advice on that? What can colleagues from white backgrounds do to help if they witness conversations or behaviours that are inappropriate? Of course, yeah. So um, I think some of that comes back to um, building your own understanding of um, how racism can manifest um, so that you are able to spot those conversations ideally as early on as possible, um, for example, because we know that you know, racism isn't just those racist incidents or slayers of violence. It is also really covert behaviours, and that's how it's persisted for as long as it has. Um, so I suppose it, it kind of boils down to um, if, for example, it's something happening to someone or um, within a space where someone from an ethnic minority background or from any other um, sort of underrepresented, uh, underrepresented background that could be affected by a similar situation, if they're present and it's happening to them, it's where the principles of bystander intervention really come in. Um, so obviously bystander intervention itself could be a whole, it could be a whole session, it could be like a half day training session, which would be the dream. Um, but the, the crux of it is, um, you know, four potential methods that you could um, a- adopt to tackle the situation in front of you. And the one that you use will change, it will change with every situation. It will change with your own comfort level as well. There's no right answer. It's just what feels right to you in that time. Um, so you might um, directly intervene um, by intervening in the conversation or the dynamic um, to actually challenge what's happening. Um, or you might want to uh, take a bit more of a deflective approach. So um, step in to change the subject or steer it away um, or even just get that person out of the situation. So if, for example, there's an uncomfortable conversation happening in an office, you know, you could poke your head and say, oh, someone's on the phone for you and get that person out of the room to interrupt and move the move the situation away. Um, you could delegate. So if you're not really in a position to help or you're not able to, um, or you just really, really don't feel comfortable, um, you can ask someone else to uh, sort of step in and take on one of those approaches instead. Um, or if you're really not sure, or it just feels like this is the most appropriate way forward, you can also delay. So you can check in on the person afterwards and sort of say, notice this happened. Um, are you okay? Is there anything that you need? What can I do? Um, it might also just be that actually it was all fine. Um, so, you know, some, I, as I've mentioned before, I sometimes do crap jokes so that I can get through the day while tackling racism for, you know, my nine to five. Um, so someone who's not quite as used to my humor might sort of step in and sort of say, you're right. And I'm just, you know, it would be me going, yeah, that's just me making a slight inappropriate joke. Um, but you can always just check in afterwards, just make sure that that person's okay. Um, and see if there's anything that you want that they want you to do. So it might be that actually you can put in um, a you can put in a log of the incident on report and support, for example, um, as a witness of it, and you can support them in doing the same as someone who's experienced it. Um, if it's something that's in private, or if it's in a room where it may appear that there isn't anyone about who would be um, affected by that conversation or by that action. 
um, but it still just doesn't sit right that's happening or you know what you're hearing just isn't what really should be said in any situation um, you can still call that out um, and I think it's still really really important to do that even if no one is there to be directly affected by it because either in in both that situation and a situation where someone who is affected by it um, it's really important to get across that that behavior just isn't acceptable um, and some of that for me just comes back to campaigning theory in general um, it's about achieving behavior change one of the um, main ways of doing that is to show that that behavior that you are trying to change is no longer socially acceptable. Um, and the behavior try that you're trying to move towards um, is what is socially acceptable. It is what the majority are doing. So um, whether someone's there or whether it's just something you've overheard, but it's still just not really what we want in our university. It's the case of just saying, actually, that's not okay. That's not funny. Um, that's quite inappropriate. If you feel up to it, explain why. Yeah, it just, just call it out. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Thank you. We've also got um, Jill Scott coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks, um, and she's going to be talking to us specifically about um, that kind of being a proactive bystander. Um, but everything you've said um, really resonates with, you know, some of the stuff, some of the work that she's been doing as well. And it is, it's just so important, isn't it, that we acknowledge what's going on um, and we do tackle it in an appropriate way, um, but we don't just let things go because it, I think you said something around how that's not how we want our university to be. And that's exactly the point, isn't it? Is we have to change the culture. It's so important. Yeah. So I suppose if you're, you know, if you're concerned about saying the wrong thing, um, you know, if, if it's that you've witnessed something um, or you want to try and approach someone to see if they're okay, it is a really, really valid concern. It's a totally valid thing to be worried about. And ultimately we're all just trying to build a more inclusive environment and not make things worse. Um, I just really stress that nine times out of 10, not doing or saying anything is probably worse than saying the wrong thing. Um, as long as you're open to the feedback and you are open to being led by the person who is in front of you and taking, um, you know, taking any direction that they give you, um, you're on the right path. Um, you know, everyone makes mistakes. Um, I've made mistakes and I will continue to make mistakes because being anti-racist is about your continuous practice. It's not about being not racist, which is a one-off state or condition. It is about continuously striving for that. So making mistakes is part and parcel of the process as it is with any kind of, um, any kind of journey that you go on or any kind of learning that you go on. Um, feeling a bit silly for five minutes, um, I can promise you, is much better than being alone in experiencing racial discrimination. So, um, yeah, just try your best and um, give yourself the space to reflect if you do get it wrong and then pick yourself back up and start again. Brilliant, Krishma. I think you've given us so much good advice in this conversation already and now we're going to we've got to the last question and I'm going to ask you uh, what we ask every guest which is we we always like to finish with three or four take-home tips for the listeners to reflect on in terms of their practice you've given us so many already but if you've got anything that we can boil down into in terms of things that they can go away and, and take a part of their practice uh, what would they be? Um, I think the first one would be um, to to diversify what you engage with. So um, I think we always see anything to do with race equality is to do with tackling racism, which is absolutely valid and true. Um, 
But I think in a truly racially equal society and culture, it's one where um, cultural diversity is celebrated and that includes um, art and fiction and music and all of the joyful creative things also being celebrated. And actually it gives us a really, really rich insight into perspectives that are different um, to our own. Um, so as a literature graduate, I'd definitely say read more books by um, authors of minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, you know, watch Netflix shows or listen to podcasts um, by different creators um, just to help expand just your own perspectives of, um, of what life is. Um, the second would be to definitely just keep the learning going. Um, the more that you understand um, the nuances of how racial inequalities manifest, especially in higher education and in the UK, um, the easier it becomes to spot them and tackle them um, before they um, before they get even bigger and um, get more out of control. Um, and I suppose the last one will be just going back to what I said about anti-racism versus not being racist. Um, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Approach the whole spectrum of the topic with curiosity and um, by seeing it as an opportunity to develop yourself and develop a better society for those around you. Um, instead of approaching it with fear, because I think the minute you bring fear into it, you go into self-preservation mode and it's difficult to take those big steps that we need to create the change that we need to see. Um, so yeah, diversify what you consume. Um, don't be afraid to make mistakes, but they're the best way to learn and approach with curiosity rather than fear. Brilliant. That was really, really interesting. Thanks for your time today, Christmas. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a really interesting discussion with Karishma. She detailed the work that's underway at the moment in terms of our application for the Race Equality Charter. I think it's really interesting that she made it clear that the application is not about glossing over issues or detailing that everything's fixed now, but showing where the university is at and detailing a clear action plan to address key issues. Yeah, and she also made it clear that the understanding where we are at the moment is incredibly important. It was so interesting what she said in terms of how it, it is so important to understand how key issues impact different ethnic groups in different ways. And we can't just have one response for all non-white people. The response needs to be far more nuanced than that. Well, there's lots within that podcast for us to think about and reflect on. If you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some resources to the website on a specific podcast reading list, which you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast also we'd love to hear what you thought about the episode so please do tweet us at live uni academy and you can also find us at elearnermat or at alexandra underscore owen on twitter and we are really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app so if you haven't done so already, please do take the time to review our show or even better, simply share the episode with friends and colleagues on your social media. Bye for now. Bye.